This is Walker Lukens, and you are listening to... Let me explain to you what we do here at the Song Convention. We collect anonymous stories, we call them confessions, from people just like you. We give our favorite confessions to songwriters and bands who then turn them into original songs. We feature lots of those songs on this podcast, so you'll hear the, the, the story that inspired it, you'll hear the song itself, and then an interview with the songwriter. Right now, you are listening to the second episode of our mini-season called 72 Hours in Newport. Every one of these confessions was taken at Newport Folk Festival last summer in the before times when you could go to music festivals. The reason we decided to feature all these confessions together is, well, one, it makes us feel like we're time traveling. Two, it makes me feel like I'm... um, Feeling that like cool ocean breeze from the Atlantic, which uh, I can't do at the moment because I we can't go there, and also because they were just so amazing. It was unbelievable the caliber of confessions we got uh, at that festival. I'm sitting here with my favorite little tall tale. Tell me your name. What's up, guys? I'm Zach Catanzaro. How are you doing today? You know, Walker, I I don't even know anymore. The way the way things have been going in quarantine, you know, we try to come here and do something entertaining and it's just so hard to focus on when every single week there's another cop killing another white supremacist killing protesters i mean just the rnc just consistently telling blatant fucking lies and coming up with no platform other than hail you know almighty trump Trump. it's just it's hard it's hard uh not to focus on that stuff so i i really don't even know how i am because all i can think about is everyone else yeah and how are you, how do you how are you getting this information? Mostly phone. Yeah. Most, mostly phone. I I mean definitely some podcasts and audio things as well. I don't think I've watched TV news in maybe a year. Mm-hmm. Um, have found myself over the last few months. Um, I mean, in the before times, I certainly struggled with being on my phone too much or needing to take a break or whatever with mm-hmm. from consuming so much just media that way. But especially as our society has started falling apart first with the pandemic, second with our government's really poor response, then the uprisings that started in June mm-hmm. and now uh, yeah, <laughs> all of them together intermixing all the time. I, and, I, and what else is going to come? I yeah. mean, yeah, there's always something else around the corner, week to week, day to day. It's just, uh, you know, there's going to be some other massive headline that's appalling and disgusting and sad and makes you want to cry and shout all at the same time. I mean, it's a fantasy to think that last summer uh, our our country was really, truly in a dramatically different place. Certainly there was no pandemic. It was easier to be ignorant, at yeah. least. You know, we were still pissed off about things we'd hear politically, but it it wasn't just looking you in the eyes every single day. When we were driving up to Newport to uh, be part of the Visit Austin, you know, activation, I definitely was just thinking about myself. 
in our business. And how many times the, the trailer's going to fall <laughs> apart. True. Totally. <laughs> that was, we did have quite an adventure yeah. getting up there. It's like a, a couple blown tires, uh, ripped the back end of the trailer off mysteriously. What else? A massive storm that we couldn't see more than five feet in front of us. Oh, yeah. That happened that back, an yeah. hour after we blew the tire. True. Yeah. That was an, that was an adventure. Well, in this week's song confessional adventure, we will not be blowing tires uh, in rural Tennessee. Uh, we will be hearing a song from fellow Austinites, Band of Heathens, who we didn't meet at the festival. Or here in Austin. We were on tour, and we were in Birmingham, and uh, uh, Wes, guitar player Wes, um, said, oh shit, Band of Heathens are here too, and... We, we Birmingham is not the greatest place to go on tour. I love Birmingham, so no offense to anyone who lives there, but it it's not an easy market. Yeah. So we went and we played a show at a brewery and sparsely attended. And after the show, we met up with Gordy from Band of Heathens. And uh, <laughs> Wes knows Gordy, and so we went to meet up with them. And um, they had just played a show as well at another venue. And... I just is assuming we were going to commiserate about how mediocre the attendance was at both of our shows, but he said that Birmingham is a really good market for them. One of their best. Not just really good, one of their best. And I have never heard a band before or after <laughs> ever say that about Birmingham, which I loved. It's it's a pretty good little market. Uh, it's like if you can get a town and it's your town, it doesn't really matter what town it is. It doesn't matter if at all, If it's Birmingham... Man. Great. Totally. Good job, guys. But Band of Heathens is from Austin, Texas, and they have been around making music and putting out records very consistently for almost 20 years. Yeah, going on 20 years. Pretty unique start to that, too. Unlike most bands, their first two albums and first three of four albums were live. That is wild. No one does that anymore. I mean, in in a way, it's kind of like what the uh, the Austin legend promises. Like you show up in Austin, you play your fucking heart out, and you get a bunch of fans, and like that's what they did. They have a a a, a record called Live from Momos. I, that when I was in high school, my band played our first out of town show at Momos. That's awesome. Uh, I was eighteen. We drove up here. We played at five p.m. 5 p.m. at Momo's. This club has been gone for a while now. It was on top of Katz's Deli. Um, but this, so we played at 5 p.m. Uh, our 10 friends who were in college came with big X's on their hand, watched us play, and then we just left. <laughs> that was <laughs> we, the whole thing. Mine was 17 at Saxon Pub. Oh, in Austin, too. Nobody could watch us play because it was 21 and up. So the whole band had X's. That we played our show and they kicked us out afterwards. <laughs> so Band of Heathens actually started at Momo's. As a, it was a songwriting circle with the three original songwriters, uh, Ed, Gordy, and Colin, all playing their own sets, not even together, not a not a band. Which I think they is, were just they were just heathens. <laughs> that's such a that's a unique uh, start for a band, and then they they slowly formed a band, made these live records, have put out several studio albums since. Um, how how would you describe Band of Heathens music? Band of Heathens has kind of made their name in the Americana genre mm-hmm. completely. Um, but they are a lot more than that. They definitely, they're like a little groovier than traditional Americana. Yeah. Uh, a little, a little heavier in the rhythm section than traditional they Americana. They're definitely a, the more rock inside of yeah. Americana, but I don't know that I would 
put them take it as far to say it's like southern rock no not at all southern rock but it it it's it's very classic but feels like just enough modern Mm -hmm. and and maybe that's that's the appeal for people that you know maybe all day long they're listening to you know neil young something like that um they hear a band like band of heathens and they're like oh this is really cool new sound and so it's got that it's got a nice blend i think that kind of brings what is traditional americana into the 21st century so the song that they wrote uh is already out it is it's it's a single off their forthcoming record the record's called stranger it drops at the end of september uh they they did this record with tucker martin who's done a lot of really cool americana sort of roots rocks records um this this song they made is incredible before we let you hear that you're going to hear the confession that inspired it We took this confession in the first hour of the first day. A man came into our trailer and asked if it was okay to tell a story about someone else. Normally, those stories aren't told as well as the confessor thinks. However, this one about his grandfather was far from normal and really set the tone for the magical weekend we shared. Without further ado, here's our confession. Confession! Hello. Hey. How's it going? Not bad at all. I'm at Newport Folk Festival. <laughs> yeah, is this your first time here? Uh, no, this is my eighth. Yeah, that's amazing. I, I love that about this festival. People are so, uh, uh, so many return visitors. It's really unique. Absolutely. Um, well, so I, I know they were explaining the project to you out there. Uh, do you have something in mind you wanted to talk about? Yeah, I was going to tell uh, a quick summary of the life of my great-grandfather, who's kind of like this uh, mythic folk legend. Okay, so so real quick, uh, spare no detail. Okay. The more the better. The more it help, really helps the songwriters and it helps it helps everybody. So just say everything, and, and you know we know nothing about you. So start from the very beginning. Okay. Cool. Uh, well, my uh, my great-grandfather's name was Agostinho Fonseca. Uh, I come from a huge Portuguese family, and he was kind of the patriarch of all of that. Uh, and he is something of a folk legend. Uh, I don't know how much of this is fact and how much of this is fiction, but I find those make the best stories. Yeah. Uh, so he was an illegal immigrant from Portugal, uh, and he came over here as a teenager, allegedly packed inside the box of a cargo ship. Um, he had gotten into the, the, the boxing factory somehow and allegedly came over in a huge wooden crate. And he came through New York? Uh, yeah, through Ellis yeah. Island, yep. Wow. And uh, he came here illegally, and because he was here illegally, he had to do illegal things to uh, to make money and make a living for himself. So yeah. he was a booze smuggler uh, during the Prohibition. And allegedly, when he was in New York, uh, between working on the George Washington Bridge as one of the construction workers, mm-hmm. uh, he allegedly got involved with illegal animal fighting, uh, meaning <laughs> that he would fight animals himself. Wow. <laughs> and so when I was a five-year-old or six-year-old sitting on his couch... Or in his, he had this huge garden that spanned about two blocks. It had grapevines and uh, rabbits and all sorts of really cool stuff. And so he'd take me in the garden, uh, and he'd tell me all these stories. And he had this ceramic statue of a panther uh, with like a gold and multicolored bejeweled collar. And he used to always tell me and my 21 cousins that he won that statue because 
in underground New York in this fighting ring, he his initiation was that he had to beat an animal with his bare hands, and allegedly he wrestled this panther to death. <laughs> um, wow! And this is being told to us by like this 98 year old, you know, uh, liver spotted old man in yeah. a white beater in his garden. Holy uh, shit! Yeah, so there was that, and then uh, uh, his his father was allegedly seven foot two. Um, and he has this black and white picture of, uh, just like his father's torso and then his mom who was like four foot seven, maybe like she was a legal midget. <laughs> and so, uh, all of us in the, in our family are super short. I'm the tallest member of my family and I'm five ten. <laughs> and so wow. that added to the legend. And the, the last, uh, story I remember that he told us, um, before he, he passed away and he was like, I think he was 98 or 99. Mm-hmm. Um, was that uh, when he worked on the George Washington Bridge, uh, he had this vision, he had a dream that the portion of the bridge that he was working on was going to collapse. And so he quit the job and he didn't go into work. And then two days later, that portion of the bridge actually did collapse and it killed um, two of his best friends that he was working with. Um, So uh, he was a, a living legend and someone who definitely helped me come up with my creativity for songwriting and for uh being a, a music teacher uh and so i, I was thinking of stories and Man. booby was was what we called him what did you call him booby b-o-b-i booby yeah but uh i don't i actually don't know if it's a portuguese word or not or something once again that might be just made up <laughs> <laughs> did uh may i ask you a few questions yeah absolutely so did he speak english with an accent absolutely yeah, yeah. Uh, a fairly thick portuguese accent okay and uh, and your grandmother uh was she also from portugal uh, my grandmother. Oh, sorry, her, her, his. I'm sorry. I meant his. Uh, his wife. His wife. Uh, so his first wife, who is biologically my great grandmother, mm-hmm. I never met. Uh, she died uh, well before I was born. Mm-hmm. Uh, but she was from Portugal as well. Yes. Okay. And then when he remarried uh, the second woman, um, and, uh, her, we called her Titia, which again I'm yeah. not sure where no, that, that comes from, but uh, she she was American. So my my uh, my family. Part of my family is Brazilian. They speak yeah. Portuguese, and Titia is a, is definitely a uh, Portuguese language thing. Yep. <laughs> um, okay, so so and did, did did he live relatively in the same part of the U.S.? Um, like as when he came over. Yeah, when he came over. Oh yeah, yeah. He he spent most of his time in New York, and then uh, my family hails from Connecticut, so they, okay. they eventually had moved to a small town called Naugatuck. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you ever heard of uh, the the fake leather substitute Naugahyde, yeah, makes a couple appearances in some Tom Waits tunes. Yeah, <laughs> uh, that was invented in Naugatuck. That's, That's like, amazing. The only thing they're 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 famous for is that the Tom Cruise War of the Worlds movie, The End of the World, was filmed there, mm-hmm. and uh, it had one of the highest polluted rivers in the entire country besides the Cuyahoga. Which river was it? Uh, the Naugatuck River. The Naugatuck River. Okay. Yeah. Uh, man, this is a really, really incredible. Uh, I'm, I'm curious. We already have great stuff. Mm-hmm. Do you have any other anecdotes about him? Uh, any other details? Any other memories? <laughs> yeah. Uh, um, he. So he was a gardener. Okay. Uh, and I, I think I mentioned he had this ginormous, like two-block garden that had grapevines and all sorts of vegetables and fruits and flowers and he kept wild rabbits and uh so i just remember going going to his garden with him all of the time but when we weren't in the garden uh he had one of those old school black and white rabbit ear tv sets and the mm. only thing see because i was in kindergarten first grade 
uh, he'd allow me to watch like Reading Rainbow, mm -hmm. and I think that's where the stories would start coming from. He'd start telling stories because he'd hear LeVar Burton start telling the story. <laughs> but uh, he uh, he was a big Star Trek fan, so he'd let he'd let me watch Reading Rainbow for a half hour, but then we had to watch an episode of Star Trek. <laughs> Um, so that's that's really that's that's the the things that strike out in my mind, anyways. <laughs> and his daughter is my grandmother. Her name her name is Lorraine. Lorraine. <laughs> yep. Well, listen, man, this is uh, this is really killer. Um, do we have all your contact info and everything? Uh, yeah, I think uh, I you, his name. you put your email Andrew address Alpha. in there. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yep. Um, this is amazing. Thank you so much for sharing. Absolutely. And uh, yeah. I think that's it. Awesome. Um, we'll help you. I'll help you step out with that door. But okay. Cool. Do you mind if I take a picture in here? No, fine? please take as many as you want. Make sure you tag the song confessional. Totally. Now here's Black Cat by Band of Heathens. the 
How are you doing, Jimena? Oh, I'm good. Yeah? Can you tell me about your morning? Oh, my morning. Uh, let's see. Um, yeah, it's like so hot out that I just, you know, wandered to the studio and, you know, just started mixing. That's it. That's my morning. Well, cool. I am, we're here to talk about the Band of Heathens track called Black Cat. Yes. Uh, which you didn't produce. Do you know who produced it? Um, was, did Tucker produce it? Yeah, Tucker Martin. Yeah, Tucker Martin. Yeah. He's great. So Gordy Quist, uh, one of the, the lead singer songwriters from Band of Heathens, uh, he, he did this song. He wrote this song and recorded it with our, our friend James Wesley Essery uh, as part of our Newport activation last summer. So it was put on one seven-inch record that went out to the, the Confessor. And uh, and then Band of Heathens, later that fall, or this is last fall, was making a record, and they re-recorded this song with Tucker Martin. Have you, have you had many songs in your experience, uh, or I guess as an artist and as a producer, are there any th- songs that stick out to you that have like totally transformed from demo to final version that you can think of? Um, let's see. Um, I mean, the one th- the one that I can remember and I feel like was pretty different from the demo was uh, "Never Understood" that you and I worked on together. I feel like that. Oh yeah. I feel like uh, that was a big transformation because your demo was just vocal and piano, right? Pretty much, I, I had I had a, a beat, but it was like this sort of uh, down tempo R and B thing. Yeah, with like big piano chords, and I think there's just two piano, three piano chords in the entire final version. Yeah, that transformed a ton. Yeah, because I feel like on that one we started with the approach that it would be all piano as the main instrument, and we had like a light bulb moment when we muted the piano. It just opened everything up. And I feel like that was a good change in direction. I feel like that worked really well. In my memory, it was definitely a, uh, I'm going to trust this guy, I hardly know <laughs> moment. But right. uh, but it worked out really well. Yeah. But I, I, had, I was really, uh, um, didn't know where things were headed at first. Why do you think you you went that direction? Or what was it about the uh, the demo version that you were trying to get away from? Um, well, I remember the way we started was recorded a piano and then put your vocals down, and then I was doing drum machine and things like that. We started overdubbing, and nothing really worked. The piano is a bold instrument; it takes up a lot of space. And I remember we were trying things, and it was just frustrating. I couldn't get it, get other things to sound really good with it, um, like electronic percussion or bass. You know, it was just re- very difficult. And I remember I just muted the piano, and all of a sudden it was vocal 808 and maybe a synth bass or something. And we were both like, yeah, this is this is sounding so much more open. It gives us, like, space and a palette to, to, to build on. Yeah, it, it went in a much more unique direction instantly. Exactly. Yeah, I think one thing about, about piano that's really difficult, it's easy to overlook the fact that it's incredibly fucking loud. Yep. And it was sort of built to be played by itself. So, yeah, it, it does take up a lot of space on recordings. 
Yeah, especially frequency-wise, what you're you're talking about of how low and high and being able to play octaves and just have so many notes in uh, yeah, just, in the sound field, it's it's just difficult sometimes. Well, so so in this this original West version of the the recording, I mean, it, it has the the same vibe as the the Tucker Martin produced version with the whole band. Uh, what what are like the big differences here between this? secret original version only we have and the the final version of black hat um the the big thing i noticed was the strings i mean there's some bold strings on there and i don't know i really i really like that um do you know if they were real strings or programmed or a, a mix or do you know how they were recorded i don't know how they were recorded but i do agree it is it is the biggest difference yeah it's like all of a sudden there's this whole other melody counter melody situation um and they're they're beautiful yeah it made me it made me think a lot of um about elo so i went back and like sort of started listening to a few things and and uh you know like living thing and mr blue sky i feel like are two really good examples for um strings especially living thing and I don't know. The way he uses real strings with synth strings, I think, is really, really great. But um, also the parts are bold, and, you know, Jeff Lynne has always been bold. But uh, I sort of got that feeling from this Band of Heathens track. You know, what Gordy said is that basically no one wrote an arrangement for this recording, right? Okay. Basically, Tucker and the band arranged, Tucker and the band arranged the strings on the fly. Um, with the string quartet, uh, I think it, which is n- the least bit surprising to me because no one can afford to pay a string arranger anymore. <laughs> yeah, one right, and two string players generally cost a lot of money. So yeah, you know you're just trying to get them in and out as quickly as you possibly can. Yeah, no one can afford a string quartet either. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, totally. <laughs> so nowadays, when you hear these beautiful lush string arrangements on. On records, I mean, most of the time, if it's even real, it's one player dubbing over themselves. Same with horns, too. You know, a lot of time, horn players can play a lot of different, you know, instruments. So they're just like, I'm going to build it up, you know? Well, we talk about this and more in uh, in my conversation with Gordy, uh, which you will hear now. Interview. Interview. All right, so who am I speaking with? Hey, this is Gordy Quist. Gordy, how did you get that name of yours? This name of mine? Um, I'm actually named for my grandfather, uh, my dad's dad, who was a farmer in Minnesota, uh, and he actually uh, died in a car wreck when my dad was 16. So I am uh, carrying his name. Man, that's, uh, that's weirdly uh, appropriate for the confession you wrote a song to. Yeah, that is weird. Yeah. And what was this confession about in your your own words? Uh, It was nothing at all like what I was expecting. Uh, It was very strange and cool. I was kind of expecting someone to give me something personal from from their life. But uh, this was really cool. It was kind of this legend of of this guy's great-grandfather. And um, he lived a really wild life that truly... Uh, reached mythical proportions and uh, you know I have no idea how much of it is actually true or not but 
uh, it's it's all pretty pretty cool how this guy came to the U.S. as an illegal immigrant through Ellis Island and ended up fighting wild animals like panthers and um, you know kind of having uh, weird uh, weird dreams um, that foretold the future and uh, and then lived to be 99 years old so I don't know pretty pretty wild what elements or stories did you try to use in your your song well I really was wrestling with what is this about and I, and I knew I had the elements of the story but I was trying to pull from it like what's important here and I think I did a version of the song that had all of the kind of major moments I, I, I tried to pull the fact that his father was seven feet tall I pulled that into the song and I ended up kind of using it I stretched that a little bit and made the statue at the end of the song also seven feet tall to give a little connection there I, I used the, the obviously the the New York City I used the fighting of the panther I did write a verse about him working on the the bridge and having a dream that it collapsed and then quit and then it actually came the dream came true I wrote a verse with that in it but then I felt like the song was a little too random and it's already random enough and weird enough so I ended up taking that verse out but I was really trying to figure out what is this about like why is this important why does this mean something to this family and why is it strangely attractive to anyone who hears it? It's like, wow, what, what is this? And you kind of like need to hear the rest of it. But that's where I came up with the chorus idea of kind of always know who your people are and just kind of remembering where you're from using this character. Would you mind uh, reciting the chorus lyrics? Uh, let's see. I gotta, I almost have to be singing it to, yeah, to do it. Um, I'm either going to grab a guitar or just grab the actual lyrics, but I'm going to grab the lyrics. <laughs> it's uh, all good. I love this. Yeah, here we go. Uh, always know who your people are. Don't forget where you're from. To lift you up, keep your feet on the ground. It's a fight to the death, then it's done. And then there's like a little background part that just says, know where you come from. And and that was what I was trying to like kind of boil it down to like, why is this important? You know? Yeah. And so if I understand you correctly, you're saying that it's important to this family, even if it's mythical and maybe not 100% factual, it's like their origin story as a family. Yeah. Yeah. I think, I think it's important to have um, some, you know, whether it's true or not, some sort of inspiration, whether as a kid or even as an adult, you know, just kind of feeling like there's something to to live up to or to run from or to be like or not be like I feel like those things are uh, they're important kind of signposts in life yeah I mean I think your your song has a a different resonance now than it did a year ago at least for me because we're going through this real national reckoning with our racist history but it's interesting with the the song you wrote because it is a part of that great American story, which is people coming over here from other countries and doing whatever it takes and doing kind of whatever it takes to get by for their family. And I think your your song kind of captures that in a way that is, uh, to me, it works and it's more powerful now than it maybe was a year ago because it's so personalized and so like 
fantastical to this one guy, and you're sort of hearing how it plays out for him even in the present, you know? And I think that's really, really pretty amazing. Thanks, man. Yeah, it it's weird. I When I was writing it, I had no intention of, I just thought it was, hey, this is a fun, this is a really cool podcast and a cool premise for an exercise in writing songs. Because I, I love the craft of writing songs, whether they're going to be used or not. It's it's like, it's always fun to take to challenge yourself with an idea and see what you can make out of it. And um, I started off just, hey, this is going to be something purely personal for this guy and his family and this story. Um, but as I kind of got into the process, I was kind of reaching for how to pull it out of the, you know, out of the personal and make it uh, more relevant. And um, I wasn't sure if I, if I got there or not, but it's weird how time kind of, it's kind of pulled it into relevance in a, in a weird way. You know, you did write this song in a, a really short time frame and uh, recorded it with our mutual friend, Wes Essery, who does a ton of work with the Song Confessional. Um, how did it evolve from, let's say, you and a guitar writing it to recording it? Uh, I got the recording, wrote the song in a, in a day, and then the next day I think we went in to record the version of it. And I love that pressure. I love I love the the clock ticking and kind of needing to come up with lines and musical ideas on the on the spot. I think that's fun. I think it's a... It's a good parameter to have while working. The, it was fun working with Wes because we, he and I played all the instruments together and it was like, well, we need, a, we need a section here. And so I would just like get on the microphone. It's fun writing with a studio as a tool. So like I had a bunch of the stuff, the verses were done on an acoustic guitar on my own. But then once we got into the studio, it was fun to come up with like half of the chorus as background vocals singing in falsetto. And it's not necessarily the, the singer singing it. And when you get in the studio and use a studio as a tool, it's fun. You can kind of musically create parts that you maybe wouldn't have come up with by yourself. And, uh, and so that, that was fun coming up with, with that stuff on the fly with, uh, you know, it's also really fun having someone else engineering and, uh, you know, we were kind of tag teaming, uh, you know, manning the board. And so it was fun for, you know, he would jump on the drums and then I'd play the bass part. But um, yeah, it was great being able to work like that. And then that version of it is kind of what it was. And I, I didn't expect to do anything else with it until, I don't know, I guess six months later, maybe. Yeah. Um, my band, the Band of Heathens, we went to Portland to make a record with this really great producer named Tucker Martin. And, um, you know, we always throw in way more songs than we need just to give ourselves options, what kind of record we want to make. And we didn't really have many minor tunes. In fact, we, this may have been the only minor song in the batch of maybe 30 tunes we started with. And so I think it kind of had a leg up <clears throat> musically just because it was a flavor musically on the record that we didn't have anywhere else. But then everyone really dug that first version of it and, and Tucker heard something in the song. He was like, oh, we can, we can definitely do something with this. And it ended up being this kind of lush, epic production with, you know, a string quartet and a long outro jam. Yeah, the t I'll call it the Tucker Martin version is really excellent. Yeah, it's beautiful. And, and I haven't 
checked out the whole record, but I'm excited to see how it works with the rest of the tunes. How would you characterize this record compared to your other ones? You know, what's unique about it? I would say the band sound has evolved over time and it started off being very like rooted in country and kind of swampy blues. And then it's evolved into, I mean, we made a one record Sunday morning record that was very much a singer songwriter record. And I love that record. That's probably in line with a lot of the music I listen to, but it was funny. It felt like our fans wanted us to rock <laughs> and that's what they were expecting from us. And it, over time, it's funny, that's become kind of a fan favorite. But when it came out, everyone was like, what is this? This is like way too mellow. But live, all those songs kind of took on a more, a much higher energy kind of take when we got on stage and played them live, just because that's the band is a rock and roll band. And then we made another record called Duende, which is much more of a like a rock pop record with like little hints of some country. And then we made a soul record. We remade a Ray Charles record. So we're kind of like all over the map. But what I like about the record we just made now is it kind of, the songs are personal and it, it the material I think leans, it's coming out of the singer songwriter world. So it has that element, but it has a much a bigger sound. It, it's kind of, a, to me, it's a blending of the, the rock pop thing and the singer songwriter thing, which are both worlds that that i love earlier you were talking about people sort of needing signposts in the past to find meaning in their lives or give their lives structures what what are some of those things for for you that's a good question for me i i think um my dad was a a military pilot and uh, we moved around a little bit when i was a kid and he was he was gone a lot when i was really young but i had a a great childhood and I'm very fortunate to have like supportive parents and no real trauma. I mean, my, my dad, the biggest traumatic event that I actually think about a lot now, uh, as a dad myself with, I have two kids, but, uh, when I was five and my sister, I think I was five and she was three. My dad was hit by a drunk driver head on in a car wreck and was almost killed. Like they didn't think he was going to make it through the night, which is very strange because his father was killed in a car wreck. But um, he he survived. But, you know, that was one big moment that I think about just kind of knowing that life is fragile and, and fleeting and kind of... Um, you know, the, the time we have here, we don't know when it's up and you kind of have to make the most of it. And uh, kind of ending up in, in music as a career, having a supportive family and having, I, I'm not, I, I had other opportunities. Like me, it wasn't, at, in the beginning, it wasn't like, oh, all I can do is music. Um, I walked away from a, a, another job that I did for a year that I could have kept doing but I just was really unhappy uh, and I and I felt compelled like I had to do music uh, for my soul and for myself. And looking back like now as like a father and like now like providing for a family is like a real, um, a real thing. Whereas when I was like 22, I wasn't thinking about that. Yeah. Um, but I, I do think kind of where I've come from and some of the choices I've made has kind of, it's it's almost like now there's like this pressure like all right well i have to make this work you know now 
my band's been together 15 years and we're no one has another job you know this is what we do and uh it felt like okay you know we've we've made it like no one's rich but we're we're you just able get to, to do it yeah we're able yeah. to keep doing it and not have to do something else and then the pandemic hit and it was like oh boy this is like this is going to be ugly but um we've really done the the deep dive into live streaming and uh and our people are are supporting us which is amazing yeah how has putting out a record during this pandemic been different from putting out other ones well there's the obvious of uh no touring this summer everything's been canceled obviously and uh we've kind of taken on a weekly variety show with the band instead of touring we just put our work in every week and coming up with a, a new live stream show every tuesday night and so it's been weird i but i i think in a strange way because people are online so much my hope is that the work we're putting in in kind of the online social and virtual world i hope that that translates into people going to apple music or spotify or youtube and and listening to the record more than they would have before i have found in my own experience that not playing for and uh, seeing your fans is a huge shift but there is something really intimate and cool that can happen with the live streaming it's it's almost more special than going to a show in our current time because you know it's the best we can do at the moment yeah it's not the same kind of show it's not the same the things that people love about the band of heathens live they're not they're certainly not getting that energy and and a lot of what is cool what makes the band fun but what it lacks there it, it is making up for in like personal connection and like it's almost like you're sitting in someone's living room or they're sitting in your living room and you're just talking between songs and chatting and i feel like i've gotten to make friends with a bunch of our fans that do this regularly with us and um my hope is that there's a a lifelong connection to the band and and for us to these people out of this really strange strange time you know I really love that Gordy took from this confession um, the idea that there are signposts in everyone's past, whether it's your family past or just, uh, you know, more, more generally um, that we draw from and we make meaning in our lives from it. Uh, I, I love it because one, it wouldn't have been my reaction as a songwriter mm -hmm. to hearing that confession, which is basically silly things grandpa used to tell me yeah totally um, it's like here's here's a little mythology yeah I, I, i'm curious though about, about your family i mean how did your family come to be that's that's a good question um because and i guess and i guess specifically just thinking about this confessor um as a american probably roughly our age mm -hmm. it, he definitely connected to this idea that his grandparents immigrated here mm -hmm. you know your, your family immigrated here. Yeah, right? absolutely. Part of your family. And it's a story that I've also grown up with, with, with my own personal identity. And I, why? I mean, I, there's no specific reason. But it's a, it's a good question because, um, you know, I, I know the obvious parts of my family story that are accurate. But, like, the fun details, I have no idea if they're even real. But essentially, um, on the Italian side, 
uh, which is my father's side. My grandfather and his, his whole family, his, his older sister, a couple younger siblings, parents, um, were coming over on the boat. Parents got sick, died, landed in Ellis Island. His older sister got custody of all the kids. Um, and around like, tw he was probably 12, she was probably 14 or 15, they became basically mom and dad of the little ones, because I think the little ones were maybe, you know, five, seven, something like that. Wow. Um, so I, I'm not sure what his sister did, but the only job he could get was hauling giant cubes of ice on his back around New York City, uh, delivering it to restaurants, which got him into the seafood industry. And that's like the story that I know is this Italian immigrant that became uh, an entrepreneur in the seafood industry and like the Fulton Fish Market in the heyday of New York mob era, you know? And there's all these myths of him, you know, like making a stand against the mob and rising up the ranks to becoming this kind of prominent upper middle class businessman. Very, very traditional, like American dream success story. Um, but like the parts of that story that I know are true is that he came to Ellis Island. Yeah. And he hauled ice on his back at some point well, and you, got into the fish market. You you know what you've been told, mm -hmm. right? Exactly. Which is this? I have a very similar story with my dad's uh, my dad's maternal grandmother. Oh, identical, but from Sweden. Mm -hmm. Parents dying, becoming adults very quickly. Self-made, moved to America, yeah. assimilate. I I guess. Why is that so powerful to us? And I guess if I can be really specific, you know, I mean, as Americans today, why is this story of our immigrant ancestors coming over here so powerful? Maybe, maybe because in that era, the immigrant story was about success in a way. It was about the opportunity, the dream, the better life. And it was told over and over and over. And it was, in, it was a time in this country that... I mean, not only was immigration accepted, it was promoted in a way. Granted, there was these quote-unquote red-blooded Americans that were very anti-immigrant, and that's why there's an Irish neighborhood in New York and an Italian neighborhood and, you know, a Chinese neighborhood. And all, everybody, I mean, even, in the, even more specific than that, there's like the Sicilian neighborhood, the northern Italian neighborhood, or there was. Now, in Chinatown, you can go to you know a Cantonese section you can go to a Mandarin section you can go to a Tibetan yeah. section that's they kind of like you know eventually they did kind of funnel people into these segregated units but at the same time America was preaching prosperity and growth not just for Americans but for the whole world I mean it was it was at the precipice of promoting global democracy I mean isn't that what we're still ostensibly about now ostensibly even as our our <laughs> society is fracturing i yeah. guess i guess i wonder this is the thing i wonder about is that so you know this story about your family mm -hmm. the confessor knows the story about his own family i know the one about mine it's the the value in it doesn't come from i fact check this and it turns yeah. out my great grandpa wasn't a liar right yeah right? no it's the ins i think it's just like the inspirational feeling behind it is like you came from people that Who had are, nothing that worked yeah. for what they had that came here that mm -hmm. like lived the American dream. And it's, it's like ingraining that story into you. So it becomes a part of you as a child, you know? Totally. And I, yeah. And I think, I guess to put another way to frame what you just said, it's about 
individualism yeah, and absolutely. family and mm-hmm. about my ancestors were exceptional. Mm-hmm. My ancestors were exceptional. And, uh, and for me specifically, and my guess is, is probably translated to you. And I know it does a lot of other people. It's mm-hmm. like that story was told for the reason of you need to work hard in life. Yeah. Cause this is what, this is what happens if you work hard in life. It's like, you can actually make something of yourself. It was I mean, all about de- work. ethic. That's definitely why I was told that story. All work ethic. And, uh, I, uh, along the same lines, my dad and his siblings were the first people to go to uh, college. Uh, Me and my sister. And it so, didn't even happen till us. So it was it was told in this light of we've been working for this for generations mm-hmm. kind of thing. You know, I, I think about this and uh, we're making this episode in light of um, all these po- police brutality uh protests and, mm-hmm. and and it, let's call it an uprising it's so much more than just these people going outside of the police station um i wonder sometimes whether in our country we're just having a massive debate about what our debt is to our history and where we're from because we have two radically different visions that yeah. are sort of carving their I think carving themselves out here i think that's spot on is like some people think there's a debt some don't yeah why don't they? Hmm. Not sure, you know. Yeah. But you 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 know a little bit about American history, and it seems like okay. Well, there's probably a debt. Yeah. <laughs> At least, I mean, so many so many different versions of that debt. Uh, obviously, slavery is the obvious one. Mm-hmm. Um, but I mean, what what we did to Chinese immigrants with the railroad system is fucked. I mean, they were basically slaves. I mean, there, there's that this argument right about uh, or not argument, but this idea of like the. Uh, immigrant or the migrant mindset and how basically to move across the world to a new country and start over you have to have a very certain mindset you have Mm -hmm. to be a self-starter all this stuff uh i think one thing that is interesting is you and i latch on to these stories about our family because it sort of sets us in this category of um exceptionalism exceptionalism yeah and then when we think about the legacy of slavery in this country, which which is which slavery, the institution of slavery, is an addendum to that exceptionalism. Yeah, absolutely. And we talk about what our debt is and what we owe and what we get from our ancestors and our collective past. I mean, it's just so dark once you integrate both stories. It really is. It, I, and it's not the story that we know of our own ancestors, mm-hmm. which which part of is you were white or whiter and could assimilate, mm-hmm. you know? Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. It's, and the, the dichotomy of that in my particular family is that my mother, um, her father was part native American, part black, maybe a little Irish, but dark skin enough to fight in a black platoon in world war two. And there's all kinds of stories and mythology that comes out of that too. That was also a part of my upbringing. So it was like, I had this, you're, you come from immigrants, you come from Native Americans, you come from Africans, mm-hmm. and you need to identify with these things somehow, mm-hmm. but also you're American. <laughs> and, yeah. and that's like, I mean, I think that's why maybe people struggle with what an American identity is in a way, because what an American identity is, is, you know, a culmination of all of your identities. And I mean, it, we should celebrate that, but there's this kind of feeling like, you know, only if you were born here, only if you've been here, your grandfather was born here, your great grandfather was born here. It's like, we're Americans. It's like, oh, at some point, somebody immigrated for everybody. 
I don't want to put words in your mouth, but I, I think maybe to put a finer point on it, uh, white Americans struggle yeah. with what a real yeah, yeah, American identity is. And, and I only say it because I think what you just articulated is a grander, more holistic version, an anti-racist version of what being American could mean. Yeah. You know? I mean, I, I think that an amazing example of that is something our awful vice president said at the RNC conventions. He was talking about Americans and then ref- while talking to quote unquote Americans referred to our African neighbors, like they're not Americans somehow. Yeah. So like, who are you? Who's who's the Americans yeah. you're talking about? <laughs> Clearly, you're talking about fucking white America. Mm-hmm. If you have to say our neighbors so they're not included in our being the Americans. It's like, yeah, the mentality that still exists. I mean, it's never not existed. You think I always think about that movie um, Gangs of New York, you know, and it's I mean, it's basically the same conversation that's still going on mm-hmm. of we're real, real Americans. We're red blooded Americans. You always hear that term, red blooded Americans. Like, well, everybody's fucking red blooded and they're here in America. I mean, it's just, I don't know. It's, we're in such a strange moment right now because from where I sit and everything, I know you feel similarly. It feels like our, we're at a no turning back point Yeah. in in our society. I mean, that most broadest sense of the term, you know, and I really don't know of some more holistic version of American that's attached to what we grew up on and what we understand our own family's histories as mm-hmm. uh, can be continued, you know? Like, I wonder whether we're ships at sea now and there's like, we're going to a new... Going to a new place. Yeah. New, yeah. That's that's a good thing to ponder on because, I, I mean, at the same time, it's like, is this time really any different? Or are we just repeating the same story over and over Completely and over? Completely fair. You That's know? a totally fair point. It's like it, you. Most recently, we talk about the '60s, but then back to the you know early 1900s immigration era that we we're mainly referring to. It's mm-hmm. same concept then. Yeah. You go back to the Civil War, somewhat of the same concept then. Immigration wasn't as big of a deal yet, but similar versus real Americans and not real Americans, i.e., slavery. Yeah. And it, yeah, I don't know. It yeah. is. It's it's very, yeah. I mean, it's very I, weird. We feel like we're on this just like the slow arc of progress, mm-hmm. but when you actually look at it, it's like yeah, some things. But what is progress? I mean, who who really knows at this point? Uh, I'll I'll put the link for this in in uh, the show notes. But there was a great episode of Code Switch a few years back about about twenty three and Me. Mm. And how and and I know that I know that you actually you've actually had a pretty profound experience with it and, have, and learning yeah. a lot about your history, but how part of the success of those tests is more people do them so they mm-hmm. get more accurate data, but how for Black Americans, the sort of desire to do it isn't there. Yeah, why would it be? Because there's not this glorious past of how we got to North America isn't embedded in the hope, right? Yeah, and so basically what they found. One is that uh, there is not a lot of data from Americans who descend from Africa and that what the data that there is is highly unspecific. It's just sort of vaguely sub-Saharan Africa, which is an area roughly the size of North America. It's massive. Yeah. So and that is one of like they they've actually it's interesting over the past year and a half or so I've seen 23andMe 
like make that region smaller and a little more specific. Right. But originally it was just like, you're this percentage sub-Saharan African. And it was that vague. Well, and, and, and my only point is just to say is that you can see in who's using it, mm-hmm. who relates to their ancestors that way. Absolutely. Black Cat was written by Ed Jurdy and Gordy Quist. It was performed by Band of Heathens. Special thank you to James Wesley Essery, who recorded the first version of this song for our Newport activation we did last summer. The theme song is written by Walker Lukens and performed by Walker, me, Zach Catanzaro, and James Wesley Essery, and mixed and engineered by Grant Ebley. This podcast was produced by me, Zach, Aaron Blackerby, Rylan Kettery, Jim Eno, Mike Lee, and distributed by KUTX. As usual, if you like this podcast, that's great. That's good enough. But if you want to do a little more, please tell a friend about it. Tell a family member about it. Sign up, subscribe, review, and uh, shoot us a message or something. Thank you so much to Gordy Quist for being part of this project and to Band of Heathens for letting us use your song.